Thank you guys. I'm so excited that you're here this morning uh, to start something brand new with us again. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And I hope that you are listening to Christmas music already. Who starts listening to Christmas music way before Thanksgiving? Who are those people? Thank you. You are my people. Um, I'm sorry for those of you who are offended by those of us who like to listen to Christmas music really early. Um, I just don't care because I'm going to listen to it. It's, uh, Christmas music is some of my favorite and, um, and I love all of it, not just the, the sacred, but I like the secular too. There's something about like, it's not Christmas until you hear Mariah Carey saying all I want for Christmas is you, right? Like. It's not Christmas until that comes on the radio or you hear it shopping or something like that. Um, obviously, um, I, I love all kinds of Christmas music. You probably do too. Um, but especially, I have a love for the Christmas music of the church, the church music that has been written over, over centuries uh, to celebrate uh, the advent of Jesus coming into the world. And um, the reason I love the old Christmas songs and the hymns is because they tell the story of scripture. Like I love all Christmas music. I love the new ones. I love listening to, I'm the serious XM guy who listens to Christmas traditions. The one, the channel that plays all of the like Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby and, and those guys, all of the really old stuff, Andy Williams. I love listening to that stuff. But the, the hymns of the church that have told the story that's in scripture for uh, centuries that have been written, they help, they help me and they help us understand the story. And if, you're, if this is your first Christmas with us, it may be as a part of our church family or, or you've never been uh, at Lindale through Christmas, uh, my prayer every year at Christmas, and it will be my prayer for as long as I'm your pastor, it's my personal prayer and it's my prayer for our church, is God... Teach us something new in the old story. Because it's a, it is an old story and it's a story that we look at every year and we repeat. And, and we can be fooled into thinking that we've just figured it out. That we know all of the story. That there's nothing new for us to learn. But that's never true. And so I always pray, God, teach me personally. Let me experience Christmas in some new way and learn something new that I didn't know before. And so... Um, in keeping with that prayer, over the next few weeks, we're going to go through this series, um, and I just called it Sing Me the Story rather than Tell Me the Story, because we're going to focus on some texts of some hymns of the church that have told us the story of Christmas. And so uh, for the next several weeks, we're also, in addition to this, as a part of this series, I'm going to be sharing uh, this message series with Ashton and Alan as well. And so uh, you're going to hear from me this week. We're going to look at, at one particular hymn. And then um, Alan is going to be doing next week. And then our senior adult choir is going to be leading worship the next week. And then Ashton is going to be sharing the next week. And then leading up to Christmas Day, I'll, I'll be sharing again. And so you're going to be hearing perspectives from all of us um, about these different songs. But what we're doing, we're not preaching the songs. We're preaching the scriptures. But we want to use the songs to lead us into the scriptures, okay? And so um, today we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Isaiah, but we're going to go from Isaiah also into Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to be um, using as the backdrop 
um, the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So I want us to look beginning in Isaiah chapter 7, um, beginning in verse 10, if you'll read along with me. It says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now, verse 14, you're probably very familiar with because we hear that at Christmas a lot. But those verses prior may sound new to you. And so I want us to look at, again, the context of this prophecy that we know is pointing toward Jesus, but th there's something going on in Isaiah chapter 7 that's particularly, that this addresses specifically um, that, that's different. And so I want us to see that and see what it says. So, so in Isaiah chapter 7, pro the prophet Isaiah, he's speaking to Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now, if you remember, um, Israel had divided in their history. They had split in the 10 tribes uh, besides Benjamin and Judah. The other 10 um, went north and they became Israel and Benjamin and Judah became um, Judah and they went, the nation of Judah, and they went south. And you remember that? You may remember some of that through our, our Nehemiah series. We talked a little bit about that history and so um, each kingdom had their own king. And so Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you, if you can read about Ahaz in 2 Kings, but in 2 Kings 16.2, that verse tells us that Ahaz was not a good king. You remember that Israel, at one point in their history, God ruled them. And God was their king and they became dissatisfied with God as their king, and they said, we want an earthly king who sits on a throne like all the other nations do. And so God, in giving them that, began a series of some kings were good and some were not. And Ahaz was one that 2 Kings 16.2 says was not a good king. He was not a faithful king. And so what's happening in this prophecy in chapter 7 of Isaiah is Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he's being threatened... Um, by the northern kingdom of Israel, the king who is, is the king of Israel, and then Aram, which is another kingdom that's north. They're both, Aram and Israel are teaming up and they've made a plan. They say, we're gonna go into Judah and we're gonna take over the temple. We're gonna take over Jerusalem and, and, and destroy everything. And so Ahaz is the king of Judah and he's scared and he's nervous because he's gotten word that these kingdoms are coming against him. And he is trying to figure out what to do. Well, Isaiah the prophet is there. And you know that part of the, northern, the southern kingdom of Judah, one of those tribes is the tribe of Judah. Now, this is the tribe that's the lineage of King David and Solomon. And this is also the tribe and the lineage where Jesus would come from. And so God says to Ahaz, the king at the time, through the prophet Isaiah, Look, I'm going to take care of you. 
I'm, I'm, you, your enemies are coming against you, I get that, but they are not going to be successful. I am going to protect you and I'm going to keep you safe. And because Ahaz was not a very faithful king, his relationship with God was not, was not very close. God, Isaiah gives this prophecy to Ahaz and says, look, God says he's going to protect the people. He's going to protect Judah. And God is giving you permission to ask him for a sign, Ahaz. Because he knows your faith is weak and he wants you to believe that what he says is true. And so he says, ask for a sign and I will give it to you. Now, there's lots of times in scripture that we read and especially in the New Testament when the, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come to Jesus and they would say, Jesus, give us a sign, give us a sign. Well, Jesus was already giving them signs. They just weren't believing them. And so they were asking for these signs out of just sinfulness. And so it's not often, sometimes in scripture, it's, it's, it shows, it, it's disobedience to God to say, God, give me a sign. But in this particular case, with Ahaz, he gives Ahaz permission. And he says, you can actually ask me for a sign, Ahaz, because I want you to believe. I want you to trust me. And so whatever sign you want, you name it. Now, now that's, that's unique. You remember when you were a kid and you would, you would pray those sign prayers to God like I did maybe when I was a kid. You lay in bed and you're like in that part of your life where you're wondering if God's really real and you pray those prayers like, God, if, if you're real, make it thunder outside or uh, make the light come on or, you know, th these weird things like that. Like as a little kid, you just pray these dumb, like give me a sign kind of prayers. Well, God actually says to Ahaz, look, I'm not going to put any limit. You, you ask for whatever sign you want, and I'll show it to you. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's awesome. Like, but Ahaz's response to that promise and that command of God was, look at verse 12. I will not ask. And I will not test the Lord. Now, it sounds like in verse 12 that Ahaz is being real spiritual, right? It sounds like he's being, no, no, I'm not going to test the Lord. The problem is, Ahaz, God just told you to do it. He just told you to ask for a sign, and you told God no. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Not a good practice, is it? For us to get in the habit of telling God no when God tells us to do something. God literally says, like, let, let, you name it. I'll, I'll give you a sign so that you believe. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not out of, of piety that he, or, or spirituality that he says no. He says no because he doesn't believe God. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want to know. He, just, he says, no, I'm not even going to ask. And so that's where the prophet replies in those verses later. And he says, listen, house of David. Now that's important because Ahaz has rejected the offer for a sign. So now Isaiah turns his attention away from Ahaz and it, he, he directs it not toward, he doesn't say, listen, Ahaz. He says, listen, house of David. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about the whole nation, the nation of Israel. And he says, why would you try, men, you, you try the patience of men? Are you going to also try the patience of God? And he's saying that also to Ahaz. 
saying, God has told you to ask for a sign and you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to test, try his patience? And so because Ahaz says no to God's invitation to ask for a sign, verse 14 is God's reply. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So he says, well, Ahaz, if you're not going to ask for a sign, I'm going to give you my own. I'll decide what the sign is going to be. And here's what it is. That the Lord himself will give a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now, this, this is a really debated portion of scripture. And if you start getting into studying it, you'll find all sorts of things about the language and the words. And about, well, what did that mean for Ahaz? And it, specifically in that context. And what did that mean in, in, in regards to the future prophecies? And, and there was definitely a context. Isaiah was not just saying this to Ahaz and it had no context for the present situation that he was in. It absolutely did. But, but what this was, and, and we know this, one, because in verse 13, he turns his attention toward all of Israel. And he says, listen, house of David. And then also what we're going to see later in Matthew's gospel is that what Matthew does is he goes back to this prophecy and reveals the true nature of what this prophecy was. The Ahaz may not have gotten it, the people may not have gotten it then, but what we know now is that what he was talking of, what Isaiah was talking about was the coming of Jesus. Because he directs, he says, house of David, he's, he's addressing all the people together. So, he prophesied the birth of a son to a young lady, and, and most historians say that that, that, probably, that that would have happened in that present day, but, but it, was, it was looking forward towards something that was bigger. Because this sign was chosen by God, it was for all of Israel, <clears throat> and there would be a future day that would come when another young woman who would be a virgin would have a son, and not that his name his name would be Emmanuel, not just because he was named after the word that meant God with us. He would be named Emmanuel because he would be God with us. He would be Jesus. He would be God in the flesh. And so we know just looking at the nation of Israel and their history as a result of their, their continued disobedience. They just kept disobeying God and we see this pattern of them running away from God and coming back and as a result of their disobedience they were taken they were taken over by the foreign nations and we saw the Babylonians come in and take them over and they send them into exile and then and then God makes it to where they can come back they can come back to Jerusalem they can come back to their homeland but even from that point until we get to the beginning of the New Testament even though they're living in their own land they're still captives because they're being ruled by worldly empires the persians ruled over them the greeks the egyptians the syrians and by the time we get to the new testament the romans are in charge and if you study the history of israel it's just one kingdom after another coming in taking over the last one and they're living under the dominion of these earthly rulers but from about 430 BC, which was the time of Malachi the prophet, which is the last book in, in our Old Testament, from the time of 430 until the time John the Baptist showed up, 
That's what, we, that's what theologians call the, the, the 400 years of silence. There was no new prophecies for those 400 plus years. There were no, no the prophets didn't speak. God didn't give word to the people through the prophets. It's as if for those hundreds of years, God was silent and didn't say anything. And it would have been easy for the people to think God was just doing nothing or that he had forgotten. But he had made lots of prophecies about the coming Messiah. It's all through the book of Isaiah, including this one, that this would come. But you think about the people during that time when they were waiting and wondering when he would come. When God would speak, when God would do something. And this is the context for the hymn that we sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So I want to I let you see the first verse of it and think about knowing this history and this story, maybe you'll understand it better. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This song is probably the oldest Christmas hymn that we still sing. This one, if you go back and read the, the history, it's kind of undocumented, but there, there are some historians that say that this, the text of this hymn goes all the way back to the 8th and 9th century. Uh, in the 900s and that it would have been a, a, a chant of Benedictine monks. It would have been like a Gregorian chant that they recited and that there were seven verses to this particular, um, and it was written in Latin originally, that there were seven verses and each day they would recant or cite one verse. I mean, they would chant one verse each day for the seven days leading up to Christmas. And it was originally written in Latin. Music was added to it in the 1700s. But then a man named John Mason Neal, who was an English Anglican priest and a scholar and a hymn writer, translated the first English version in 1861. So that's how old this is. And this is, this is one of the things that I love about so many of the old hymns. Like in, the, in these days, so many of the hymns that, that are foundational in the church, they were written by theologians. They were written by scholars, men who, who studied God's word. They, it wasn't, they were musicians second. And they were theologians first. So this is the context. Israel crying out. Ransom captive Israel. They're not captive in another land. They're captive in their own land. But then Matthew's gospel. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 1. This 400 plus years of silence where God seems to not be moving. Seems to not be doing anything. And this is the state. Lonely, exile, God, when are you going to come? When are you going to answer? We've, we've heard the promises for so long, but it's been hundreds and hundreds of years. When is it going to happen? Matthew chapter 1, the angel comes to Joseph and tells him, 
about Mary, or he comes to Joseph because Mary has already told him that she is about to have a baby, and Joseph is wondering, what am I supposed to do about this? And he's thinking about all of his options. But then chapter 1, verse 20, it says, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, from that line of Judah, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the angel says. And then Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, points us back to the book of Isaiah in verse 22 and says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet." See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. What Matthew in his gospel, as he's writing this story, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he goes back to that prophecy in Isaiah and shows the full fulfillment of what that prophecy meant. It meant something then, but it meant something even bigger now. And as Matthew's writing his gospel, he's, he's showing people like, look, what Isaiah was talking about way back then, like this is it. This is the coming, the full fulfillment of that prophecy. Matthew one twenty three is a direct quote of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And that was 600 years prior to, to Jesus coming. Isaiah made that prophecy 600 years early that Jesus would come as the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate protection where Ahaz was, was asking for protection. He needed somebody to deliver him from his enemies. And Isaiah said there'll be one that comes later who will be the ultimate deliverer of his people. And so there are lots of names for Jesus in this hymn Um, and all of these names come from scripture and I want to show you some of those all of these verses Um, one verse says O come thou rod of Jesse and that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 O come thou rod of Jesse free thine own from Satan's tyranny from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory or the grave we know that the people in Isaiah, they were, they, they were threatened, they were under tyranny from, from these earthly kings, right? But then even greater than that is there's a people under tyranny of, of death and sin. And the rod of Jesse is the, is the power of God to deliver them from their enemies and to deliver us uh, from the tyranny of Satan and the power of death and hell. It's what Jesus does. Another verse says, O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here, by your coming. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. You think about the emotional state of the people as they waited for the Messiah to come. Jesus is the dayspring. He's the light that, that breaks through in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that 400 years of dark silence, it seemed. 
Jesus comes as the day spring. In Luke 1, verse 78. Another verse says, O come thou key of David. That's a reference to Isaiah 22, verse 22. O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path of misery. Jesus is the key that opens the door to eternal life for us. And then another verse says, O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace. Desire of the nations, that's from Haggai chapter 2 verse 7. That he comes to unify, (laughs) comes to bring us together because we've created all these divisions. He's the prince of peace is one of the titles that Isaiah gives him. So I love this hymn. And I think the reason I love this hymn is because it's probably one of the most real life songs that we sing at Christmas. Even the music, when you sing it, it's in a minor key. It sounds, you sing it consistent with what the lyrics say. It's meant to communicate that, that mourning and that longing of the people sitting in the silence, waiting for the Messiah to come, wondering if he ever was going to come. In the midst of all of the the turmoil and the persecution and the tyranny of these kings, saying, God, when will you come? You've told us that you're going to send a Messiah, a deliverer for us. When is that going to come? And so the song is like a a prayer of, of sorrow and grief, but at the same time, It's an answer to the promise because it says rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It's a a call to rejoice and say he's coming. Believe the promise of God. I love it because it's not just holly jolly, happy and cheerful. And there are Christmas songs that are holly and jolly and happy and cheerful and, and you should love those. And there are hymns that we'll talk about that, that are that way. They're celebratory. They're, they're, they're meant to celebrate. But this one is like, the reason I love this one so much is just, it's just this mixture of what the Christian life is. It's, it's, it's the hope of glory. But at the same time, it's the, it's the longing for things to change. It's the longing for, for everything to be made new. Um, I think about Romans chapter 8 uh, when, when I sing this song and study this. Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Paul says, 
Like this is the spirit of the hymn. This is the spirit of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Like we know there's a promise. But we're living in, in this state where we are just longing for the full redemption of everything. He says, eagerly waiting for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. So much of us has already been redeemed. When you put your faith and trust in Christ and, and he saves you, he's redeemed you. And your soul is secure, but there's so much about life and about the world that's still yet to be redeemed. That we look forward to. That still there's an incompleteness to our redemption. Even though it's true and it's sealed. And as, as Paul says here, we have the spirit as the first fruits. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal to the promise. That, that we'll be fully redeemed. That everything will be made new one day. And so when we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's not only a song about who was promised to come to Israel. But it's about who has already come. And it's about, even better, who is coming later. It's about who's coming soon. It's that same longing. <coughs> it's that same longing that we, that we sing in this song that we have as believers now for the coming of Jesus the second time. I love this quote um, from John Piper as I was reading and studying in regards to this particular hymn, he said this, and it was just, I can't say it any better, so I just want to share it with you. He says, the Christian life oscillates between these two poles, the overflowing joy of the already redeemed and the tearful yearning of the not yet redeemed. Not that we ever leave the one or the other in this life. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And if you're a believer, you know what that means. You feel that in your life. You, you feel that in your heart. There's some days that the greatest thing in the world is to wake up and, and, and live in the world that Jesus has made for you. And like Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's some days that you just want to throw your eyes up to heaven and say, Lord Jesus, when are you coming? When will you come? When will the wait be over? When will all of this darkness that's around us that we see, we look around and the whole world seems to be rejecting you? When is it? When are you going to come? And we anticipate it. So when we sing, O come, O come, we're not only celebrating the birth of the Savior, but we're also preparing our hearts and growing in excitement for Jesus' second return. Which we could very well witness in our lifetime. And when we sing this song, we should, we should sing it with that expectation that he could come at any moment. So in a sense, every verse of the song is helping us place our eyes on Jesus' return by remembering his first coming and then anticipating and yearning and hoping and even aching for his second coming. It's a song about who has come and it's a song about who is coming. It's a song about God's faithfulness in the past and it's a song about his faithfulness in the future. I want us to end with the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22. 
verses 16, 17, and 20. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for Jesus? Are you thirsty for that day when he comes? Because there's only two responses to the return of Jesus the second time. It will either be celebration and worship or it will be dread and despair and fear. Because he will come the second time and he will come in power and he will come in judgment. But for those of us who are in him, he's, and he calls to all of us, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life freely. He offers it to us. And the one who is coming, his invitation to us is come. The key of David, the door is wide 